This is episode eight of my Dollaramas podcast top picks. My name is Coco Green and I'm here with Abla Candelaft. And we are going to talk about Colonial Chic, Gone with the Wind and Jane Austen films and really exploring themes about post-colonialism, symbolism, really what it is we're seeing when we watch these films, because as the famous quote goes, it is not what we look at, but it's what we see. So Abla will start with her top picks and then we will get right into our analysis. So Abla. I've got quite a lot of picks because before I jump in, I want to yet again talk about Encounters. So the Encounters Short Film Festival that usually takes place in Bristol is in my opinion, one of the best short film festivals in the world and probably one of the best film festivals generally in terms of its programming. I think it's some of the most discerning, creative and sharp-eyed programming and curating I've seen. Literally, you can watch 200 films and you'll count on the fingers of one hand the films that you thought were, weren't that good or you just didn't enjoy. They, it's so such an entertaining programme. And it's on now and it will finish on the 11th of October. And this year it's all digital. So it's all online, which isn't great in the sense that it takes away from the atmosphere of the festival and what makes a festival vibrant and useful for filmmakers because it loses its networking element. However, it allows you to watch so many films from the comfort of your own home for the very small sum of £10. So all the passes are £10 and it gives you access to all hundreds of um, Encounters short films. And they are so good. I've already watched the Palestine programme, which was done in uh, in collaboration with the Bristol Palestine Film Festival. And I'd like to quickly highlight the film Gaza Graph, which is a history of Gaza told through the history of its photographers and it's very moving, beautiful, really cool if you're interested in history, if you're inter- interested in photography. And I watched the horror selection, which is great. Uh, there's some really fantastic cinematography, some great performances. The comedies are really funny. So that's Encounters. It's now on. Get your £10 pass on the website. Uh, we've been watching a series called The Vow, which is a true crime doc which um, was broadcast on HBO about a cult called Nexium and its leader called Keith Ranieri. So this guy Ranieri sells empowerment workshops through some very slick uh, marketing materials and calls it the Executive Success Programme. So the series, interestingly, was filmed by uh, Shihan Nujem and Karim Amr, who also directed The Square and The Great Hack. And it starts off quite underwhelming, so you have to give it a chance. It's quite plodding, it's long, it goes through various twists and turns and you're not quite sure it's leading on to. The the first couple of episodes, you're like, okay, this is not mind-blowingly weird. Um, It's just another one of those, you guessed it, MLMs. Um, But it does become much more nuts in the subsequent episodes. It's very interesting to see how these celebrities get caught caught up in this and how people that seemingly are fully compassmentous and you wouldn't think would fall for this kind of behavior end up completely um, embracing it. And the weirdest thing is it's run by this complete 
charisma vacuum of a man. But do they talk to them though, right? So they express how they got involved and how they got out? Uh, yeah, exactly. So they got out. That's the idea. And I, uh, he's in prison now. But what did you think of their explanations? Was it believable to you or you uh, just said, nah, there's more to that well, story? Well, actually, one of, the, <laughs> one of the, the people interviewed said she was like, I'm paraphrasing, but you wouldn't believe intelligent people like me would join. I'd be like, oh, I think you're giving yourself way too much credit there. <laughs> no, I can't believe it. Oh, um, no. It's just, there are so many red, like obvious red flags and it's just all a bit shit. And I'm I'm so surprised that all these, but you know, I can't, I can't, ju- like I'm judging, but I shouldn't. As I said, I in the end, maybe I'll, I'll, I'm the first person that'll fall for just freebies or whatever. Um, no, I remember so, you were quite affected by, what was her name from Wild Wild Country? <laughs> yeah, Sheila. Yeah, exactly. But Wild Wild Country, they were selling you a, a like a hippie existence in some beautiful settings. That's, That's true. More you did than... get to join a community in the, your way <laughs> of life. Fat man wanting to play volleyball with you at midnight. It's just really <laughs> odd. Um, interestingly, Ranieri's pre-Nexium business was in MLM. It was a, a a scheme called Consumers Byline, obviously. So um, it, it then shut because it, it was accused of being an illegal pyramid scheme. So that's the vow. It's now on. It's not uh, on. It's not finished yet. So there's more more revelations to come. The other thing I've been watching. I'm going to try and speed this up. But the only the other series I've been watching is a three parter. It's very good. It's the uh, Dennis Nielsen drama on uh, BBC and it stars David Tennant, who is bears an uncanny resemblance to Nielsen and does a superb portrayal of Nielsen's mannerisms and way of speaking and t- voice tone and so on. So if you haven't heard of him, Dennis Nielsen is a serial killer. He was convicted in 1983 of a series of murders. It's very surprising how he was caught. He basically called, I can't remember if it's the plumber or his landlord to complain about blockage in his drains. And turns out it was human flesh and bones that were blocking his drains. And then the police turns up. He's like, oh, why are policemen investigating this? And the policemen say, well, because we found some human flesh. And they go up to his flat and they say, well, we were told by the neighbours that it was coming from your flat. And they go up to Mm -hmm. his flat and it stinks of decomposing corpses so they're like where's the rest of them and he says they're in the wardrobe so over a number of years he kills quite a lot of people Uh, they're all young men they tend to be vagrants homeless men who are lost and alone on the streets of London and he goes to usually Soho and lures them into his flat with promises of food and sex and or warmth or comfort Mm -hmm. and he discloses everything so he explains very dispassionately and very clinically how he would cut the bodies up and how it became an impediment because he would he'd stack them under the floorboards but then they would start to smell and how that was an inconvenience and he had to think of other ways of going about it so he started boiling their heads and so on (laughs) okay you're not sure whether or not he's playing games with them because a lot he's he's telling the truth but he's also concealing some of it or saying things that are not quite accurate or remembering things very sharply Mm -hmm. whereas he says he doesn't remember any of the victim's names which is more surprising so up to the very end you're not sure how insane he is so that's on bbc 
And I'm just going to come quickly on to festivals. So aside from encounters that I really wanted to mention, London Film Festival's coming up. I'm not going to go over it because it's got a lot of publicity already. But this year's edition, I thought it's interesting to flag that it includes virtual reality. So it's great. You get access to VR and it's free. Ah, the catch is you'll need an Oculus Rift. I just wanted to flag the Nordisk panorama, which takes place in Malmo in Sweden. And it's one of the most important film festivals for Nordic documentary and short films. It also acts as a marketplace for professionals. So there'll be a few in-person events, but it will mostly be online screening, like online screenings like most other festivals. And finally, Grimfest, which is a horror film festival. It's really good fun and it will be entirely online this year which I'm kind of glad because I, I never managed to attend. So I thought you didn't like scary it, films. This, we have had this conversation like five times and every time <laughs> okay. you're like, oh, really? Yeah, me too. No, I didn't know. Yeah. Hans <laughs> American Horror Story a few weeks back. Of course. Yeah. It's all coming back. <laughs> and me mentioning the horror selection at Encounters, which is so good. So Grimfest is fun. It's It's got like really wacky combos of programs and films. There's one which is about an African-American family on the run that collides with cannibal clansmen. And this is called Death Ranch. Have you seen that or you will see it? I'm, I haven't it. seen that, no, but I, I will. <laughs> and this year sees the first edition of the Grimfest comic, which will be available for free exclusively to Grimfest 2020 pass holders. And that's it for me. That's it for the top picks. Okay. To give a bit of context to the discussion, this came about because we were discussing the decision to remove Gone with the Wind from online viewing. So apparently it's been available this whole time. And then the more we got to talking about it, we both saw the relationship between Jane Austen, the period films, we say period films, they're not all Jane Austen, but Jane Austen are more popular ones. And to really think more about what the purpose of removing the films are and if it does really make any difference. So we have our thoughts about that. So I did do some research mm -hmm. about Gone with the Wind because I have only seen it once and that was plenty. And I definitely left going like, why was everyone so excited about that? And to be fair, even though I know Hamilton isn't a film, but they did screen the play. So I think we can include it, even though... It is a Broadway yeah. play. I felt the same way watching that. I thought, well, okay. I mean, I don't know if people were so excited because you could finally see black people <laughs> in a period piece and they weren't slaves. But then it's like, well, to pretend that slavery isn't an active part of nation building, I almost think is worse. No, I don't almost. I absolutely think it's worse. Because then you can feel good because they're rapping, but it's like, well, what are you really feeling good about? And I think ultimately it's down to symbolism. And I think that plays a role both with Gone with the Wind and with Jane Austen films. So, uh, so yes. So when I was looking at, let's start with the Gone with the Wind. So when I was looking up Gone with the Wind, I came across the Harris Poll. Now the Harris Poll was done in 2008 and 2014 was the most recent mm -hmm. one I could find, even though that was six years ago. And it named Gone with the Wind as American's favorite movie of all time. So in the book poll, 
So they asked about films in the first one. And then in a 2008 Harris poll about books, it was the second favorite for women, all political partisans, Democrats, Republicans, and independents, baby boomers yeah. aged 40 to 44 to 62 and matures those over 63 in the South and the Midwest among whites and Latinos. They say Hispanics, but uh, you know, I think we should say Latinos and those with high school or less education. In the 2014 poll, the only difference is that it was no longer a second favorite for Latinos. Even a 2015 BBC culture poll of film critics around the world could not help but to include it in a list of the top 100 American films coming in at number 97. It sold more than 200 million tickets in its initial release and seven U.S. releases and adjusted for 2019 dollars, that would be one point eight one billion dollars domestically common cited reasons are the themes of survival bravery war love southern belle anti-hero as a leading lady as part of a coming age story just like birth of a nation 1915 not the more recent film yeah <laughs> also controversial for some reasons. um you know it was noted for its performance performances and cinematic innovation when birth of a nation was released it was noted for its amusement and entertainment experience it wasn't just the screening of the film but it was all the entertainment you would experience surrounding the film right and while birth of a nation we know the central theme right was about restoring the racial order gone with the wind is more of a fantasy i think of a social order in which black oppression and resistance are invisible. So black people are present, but they're present in very key ways, right? It's, um, they're part of the household, obviously, we know. Um, oh gosh, this is so awful. I didn't write down the, and I shouldn't even have to write down the woman who played the maid in Gone with the Wind. Oh, the shame of it who all. Who won the Oscar? Hattie McDaniel. Hattie McDaniel, yes. Hattie McDaniel won an award, but it's like they were certainly the southern fantasy of slavery where there's no brutality and oppression it is they're like family even Mm -hmm. after in uh, gone with the wind when slavery ends they stay and they don't stay because of the real reason why they stayed because they couldn't leave just like you know just like yeah out of devotion yeah and they're benevolent as well because you never see them i mean of course there was the birthing scene right the famous one um where she had spent the whole film talking about how she you know midwife extraordinaire and then when it came time she Mm -hmm. actually didn't know so that was a justifiable rage right (laughs) it it serves as comic relief in reality (laughs) though right we all know that slavery had to be brutal it had no choice it reminds me that that film um not the film the book sugar and the blood that takes place in barbados and a historian writes it And she weaves in historical narrative with her family history. And she talks about how visitors to the island would hear the screams of slaves being tortured, but to everyone else, they couldn't hear it anymore. And it's almost like that's, that is something that I think about when it comes to Gone with the Wind, that to anyone else it's obvious, but this is a story they have to tell themselves to sort of justify the social order. So with that, I was very shocked at how 
popular the film is. And I almost thought it explains so much because films are important because they are not only cultural artifacts, right? But if, if you know about the propaganda, then mm -hmm. it t tells you a lot about why people see things the way that they do. And that I think absolutely yeah. says so much around why people struggle to understand the legacy of slavery when it's personified in these mutually beneficial relationships. And you can always kind of fall back on, well, not all slaves are bad, or not all slaves are bad, not all slaves were a, oppressed, right? Not all slave masters are bad and yeah. not looking at it for an institution, even though I understand that's not what Gone with the Wind was supposed to be. But I do think it, uh, if you look at documentaries, even from the sixties and it's talking about the freedom struggle and they ask mm -hmm. white people and they will tell you like, they love us. Like people are coming and filling their head with these ideas, but they are happy. Don't you understand if they're sick, I will personally nurse them back to health, right? They've been here. I grew up with them, right? We played together as children to this day, right? You have people who are in those labor relationships and they can't vote. <laughs> that's, and that's why I think there it, it's all comparative, right? Because I think there is certainly this idea of which was used to justify slavery, right? That, well, what would you have preferred to be left in Ghana? No, you were better off here. So I think there's that element mm -hmm. to it. But then there's the other element where, in fact, black Americans are the only ones who were brought as property and no other group, every other group chose to be there. And that's the difference. And I think it's a major difference. And to yeah. overlook it, and, and it always creates a sort of problem, right? Because if you are, and that, that would be everyone except Black Americans, right? If you are in the U.S., then you have to justify why you're there because either you or your ancestors could have gone anywhere else. So even then, you have to acknowledge all of that's made possible through an anti-Black institutional racism. That's, that's the only way that makes any of it possible mm -hmm. because the country is built on a white privilege that then everyone who comes tries to then become that like no one certainly comes and says oh no I'm definitely going to be part of the black group why would anybody do <laughs> nobody would do that even people who come from where black people came from right West Africa aren't saying that and why would you like why would anybody do that but yeah. then it also creates that sort of it, it creates a like a contradiction kind of like the famous Malcolm X you know uh quote right like Plymouth Rock landed on us and and that's just it it's like it all had to be built on that the labor of it and now the failure of it is what makes everyone else's life possible and you have to you have to reconcile that but then you don't necessarily yeah. have to reconcile it if you buy into these cultural ideas that well maybe it wasn't about exploitation maybe it was about something else and these films allow it to yeah. be about something else. And that's what people seek to preserve when they profess fondness for films like Gone with the Wind. Um, the arguments are that they want to go back to this cherished way of life, this mythical past where everything was in order and everything was in its place. And I think that's where probably where the same um, sort of fondness for period drama comes from in the UK, especially regarding Jane Austen's work. And in both cases, and I think that's why it was interesting to, that's what probably made me think of her work, is that I'm putting together mm -hmm. slavery and colonialism because what they serve are like a background that props up that way of life. And they're as invisible 
and inconsequential in the 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 represent the filmic representations of Gone with the Wind and all the Jane Austen both novels and and films. What it made me think of, and the reason I bring up Jane Austen is because that's an example given in Edward Said's book Culture and Imperialism. There's a whole chapter that's devoted to Jane. It's called actually called Jane Austen and Empire, and he uh, refers to her book Mansfield mm-hmm. Park. And there's an interesting bit where he explains how Sir Thomas, uh, so the the protoman, yeah, the it's his estate where it takes uh, place. That, his, that's his estate. Who's the, the, yeah, the big landowner, basically. Yeah, he controls his home in England like he does his colonial dominion. The references are very tangential. Like you'll you'll have the odd reference to him going out there to the colonies to just set things in order. And that's what explains his wealth, but that's not, that's only vaguely alluded to, but you're not made aware of the reality of what that means. So the the whole book is just peppered with these vague references to faraway colonies, which obscures the fact that the Bertram's entire wealth was built on the back of slave labor. And the reason why that's interesting as well, and why Jane Austen is relevant, because that same pattern of dismissing these factors, like in Gone with the Wind. Or from what I understand, Edward Said didn't give as an example the works of uh, Kipling, for example, who was much more open about his embrace of colonial practices. And it was just very explicit in his books. Whereas Jane Austen didn't really bother with any of that. It was That was the just the by default background of whatever was taking place in the UK. So there was something that was very accepted about the UK's ownership of these places. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I think I think with Jane Austen books, because I actually do, I like Jane Austen books, and I have never read Mansfield Park, though. I've only seen the film. And the others, I've read the books and seen the film. And I like her work because of the way she draws her characters, that they always are confronted with, they're always forced to get off their own high horse at the end, which I like because that never happens any other time. Right. And there it shows how Mm -hmm. the way they saw things initially, they're always blinded by what they want, whether it's to be with someone smart or someone wealthy or someone attractive. And it always leads them down the wrong road, even though they spend half the book pointing how everyone else is doing exactly what they're doing. And she does it in a very fun way. Um, I do think Mansfield Park though, she did. And that's just it because I've not read the book. I'm not sure how mm-hmm. she wrote it, but I do know that in the film Mansfield Park, they do bring it up on a few occasions. So the son who was sent, the oldest, who was sent to Antigua, Antigua, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Antigua, is it Antigua and not yeah. Antigua? Well, we we know which Caribbean island. I thought exactly the huh? same thing when I read it. Well, <laughs> I thought of exactly the same thing when I read it. I- Oh, Antigua, Antigua. And I feel like people have said that, but, but then I when you... might be wrong. Anyway, it, it doesn't matter. Yes. Okay. So when he's sent there, he comes back. They hint that he is then mentally unwell because of what he saw on the plantation, right? Then when you have, I believe the character's name is Fanny, the protagonist, who's always, you know, yeah. Yeah. She criticizes to say, oh, like that's, you know... To criticize that's the way that they get their money but then it has to be pointed out to her but that's what makes your life possible so I'm not sure how you can criticize something on the one hand while you sit in the drawing room and sew on the other like that is a contradiction and I was reading this book 
late for book club. It's like the confessions of Fanny Lang Franny Langdon. And those women who are part of this anti-slavery campaigning group want to give up sugar as a boycott. But of course, no one wants to give up the money that they make. <laughs> they, they make from the sugar, which would be the real boycott, right? But they don't want to do that. And I think it's a play on this idea that we are we are more happy with the symbolism. And I bring that up because I, I see the connection because in Mansfield Park, it seemed it's presented as enough that she spoke up about it, but she didn't have to do anything. And you see the same thing today. I think like it's enough to understand the analysis, but you never have to take the next step to say, okay, well then I'm going to have to take some action in my small way, whether that be understanding certain policies, campaigning for certain policies that try mm -hmm. to chip away at these structures and what you don't have to do that you're not obligated to um and i think we see those parallels there and i did always though think it because i didn't really start watching jane austen films or reading the books i mean i read some of the books in high school but not until much later where i understood the relationship between plantations and the slave i mean i always knew about the slave triangle to the kind of that's what got the raw materials. So I thought of it more in yeah. terms of industrialist, but not this sort of landed elite might be the way to say it. Um, but then once yeah. I understood that, I kind of took it as Which a was given. on its way out at the time. But a lot of people don't. And it's more, uh, I would say a, a Gramsci ideological process you see where Instead of understanding that, right, the foundation of where they get their money, where it came from, and then you say, okay, but I'm going to enjoy the film mm -hmm. anyway, you instead are watching the film and the expectation is to fantasize yourself as the Jane Austen characters. Like, a ch like you watched it like a child. Like, I don't know if you did that when you were kids, but when yeah. we were kids, we would watch, when the film would start, we would pick out which characters we were and say, I'm her, I'm her, I'm her, and just... And that was part of the fun of watching it is that now you are experiencing it as if you were that character in the film. And that was part of the fun. Mm -hmm. At some point, though, we stopped doing that as teenagers. And unfortunately, I feel like a lot of people are still doing that. And instead, they like to fantasize about doing ballroom dances, having servants and being able to get a husband with an annual income of 5,000 pounds a year. Right. As opposed to... <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not saying my mom says this sucks the fun out of films, but it, do, it doesn't suck it out for me. I think it can still be fun while you can still acknowledge where uh, where that money came from. And I don't know. To me, it's, it's like I have this conversation with people who kind of just learn this stuff in their 50s. You're like, where have you been? And then they say they don't really want to read the book anymore. It's like, well, I mean, <laughs> I don't know where you've been at. But, you know, you, you know what I mean? So I feel like. I can still yeah. know that and still enjoy the films. Although I think it's because it's further, it's not as close to home because gone with the wind. I could never do that. I cannot disregard the slavery. It's different though, because the slaves are actually there versus in Jane Austen's film. You just uh, see it materially, yeah, that's a good point. but in gone with the wind is both material and symbolic through the, the very um, characters that the slaves play. And of course they're stereotypical characters, right? They're not three dimensional characters. Yeah. I don't, I shouldn't really give Jane Austen as an example in terms of 
that argument because I don't actually enjoy her books, nor do I enjoy her <gasps> films. What? I do not okay, like wait, period first, drama. Can you say, and, I, I mean, I don't want to like, throw off your train of thought here, but what what's not to enjoy? The characters getting their comeuppance, like proving that they were jerks all along, but you couldn't see it because they were sexy or they had great banter or they were so witty or you right. love their mom so I'm much. not going to get into that <laughs> it on record just because she's a bit like... Um, Tarantino was so if you criticize her you you, you, you get you don't like threats. Tarantino either um, you know one of his films is on the hateful eight is on my top 10 list of all time once we do that so I'm looking forward to that now more than <laughs> what God. did you see the hateful eight though I did <gasps> it was boring <gasps> it was boring what? and it was I found they had a unpleasant streak of misogyny running through it which i'm not sure was okay we we will definitely have to, subversive. Have to do two parts right so maybe we'll do like we'll do a top 10 and then we'll do five and one and five and the other that's an idea okay oh, i'm gonna write that down that sounds good i can't wait for that i can't believe <laughs> you all, found that boring all i'll say is about change i just i just don't enjoy those i don't enjoy the stories i they don't particularly speak to me i find the characters irritating and one-dimensional but most importantly and maybe i just don't like period drama and maybe that's what it is there's that i can't see past that british colonial past i just feel like i viscerally don't care about these people having said that i think it's a bit of both it's my disdain for period drama in that regard and also i just don't enjoy that her stories i <laughs> sorry oh um, my god and it, it's that's why it, i find it quite grating when again you can't really criticize her now because there's quite um i'd say problematic romanticized vision of jane austen's work it's very hard to critique it because as soon as you do you get slammed down by her more enthusiastic readers that stress her feminist credentials um i have to i don't know about feminists like let's not get carried away but, there does but that's exactly be... what's what keeps brit what's brought up a lot really okay yeah yes, yeah yeah, yeah oh she, yeah i would that's interesting i don't see her as a feminist although it seems like people are protective of her because she was a spinster and i don't think i get the same protection and i don't think it's just because i'm black i just don't <laughs> think spinsters get the same <laughs> same protection they once did right i think Where... respect to her i think that's probably the best thing about her <laughs> um... <laughs> but i just but I, she, I don't but she does enjoy get to her some books some i'll leave it at that, that um <laughs> also because i had an english teacher that made us read her entire collection over and over again and we never strayed from Jane Austen's work for two years and it, it bored the hell out of me um, but that aside I I guess you would enjoy her work in the same sense that I would enjoy watching quite a lot of Hollywood films that have very sinister very uh, insulting depictions of say Arab characters right Mm -hmm. there's there's loads of them i mean you'd have to handpick the ones that don't and i just have to switch that part of my brain off i just have to accept that it is what it is and i i sort of have to 
I find myself apologising on behalf of the filmmaker as I'm watching it so I can enjoy it more. I'm like, you know what? He probably just doesn't know about this. He probably just, that's what he thinks these people are like. It's not malicious. It's not, uh, the intention isn't to disparage a whole community or whatever. He's, and just because otherwise I just couldn't see past that. And, I, and that's that's been the case ever since Hollywood has been an industry well, we know Hollywood is the big one. People can say what they want to, or, you know, even people clap back with that silliness. Well, you can just start your own film industry if you have a problem with it. Like, let's look. Hollywood is, yeah, that's, it's the, is market leader the word for it? The term, I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So what they do matters because it has such an impact. And I think that was the more shocking thing to me when I lived overseas that how much people thought they knew about the US and then you would ask them how they knew and it was always the media never anything yeah. they read never anything they experienced and it's like well it's it's hot like how can you think that's real that's supposed to be a fantasy and which is why then again the representations become so important but i'm also concerned because every I shouldn't say every ethnic group but every ethno-racial group let's say has a sort of league that they don't consult, but they do have a platform to kind of come against certain depictions or things. So I think mm -hmm. it's more of a question like, why don't you hear from those from, from them more? I didn't even know that was a possibility, to be honest. Yes, it, but it could be the, the whole thing that if you get people in those positions, they'll usually sign off on things just to maintain their own position. So even if a film is racist, like, well, it keeps me in work. So <laughs> it's gonna... you know, well, to not rock the boat, I doubt they're very yeah. powerful. I doubt they they could come up against a huge big budget film. Well, not powerful in the sense that they could stop it, but powerful enough to say at least to speak out against it. So they're not a political organization. Right. But in it's saying like, yeah. OK, well, they could release these statements against it. Will it get them anywhere? Likely not. But they could still have it on record yeah. and be part of. I mean, and that's the thing, I don't even know what that would look like, but it seems like... I, now, again, yeah. just guessing, mm -hmm. I would say it's to not rock the boat because I feel like they probably think they'd get m much more shit for it um, than if they just let something slide. Yeah, no? I mean, that's the, the problem for like a lot campaign, of these things are Twitter set up, right? They're, they're set up for individuals to have their own come up, not for communities to be represented. Uh, yeah, yeah more you know more diversity in the representation because certainly we don't want these sort of because um, I, I went to this and this was when I was living in London I went to uh, some small film festival that they had at the Ritzy in Brixton and of course the film had to be about and it was short film I love short films and <laughs> It had to be about an honor killing. Like, wh why? Like, you know, it's not as if honor killings are in. Once they're in the news every week, okay, then certainly you need to have the film. Yeah. But it's like, is that really? So we get a couple of films about British Muslims. And <laughs> one's got to be an honor killing. Exactly. Nothing. Exactly. And like this is what so I find That's the really... dominant narrative. I don't, it's not a single yeah. narrative, but it's the dominant one. And it's all, and it seems to be, and I said, I just, I can't stay. And it wasn't even so much that it was the honor killing thing, but at the root of it, I feel like it's the bigger theme of a culture clash. 
Like we're westernized. Our parents aren't. We have this problem. It's like, no, there's got to be another story. And and even, of course, you know, I'm not from that ethno-racial group. It just contrasts to my own experiences where just the and and I'm sure it likely had to do with the selective migration because the town that I grew up in had a big influx of um, migrants from Afghanistan in the late 80s, early 90s. And these people, these people, (laughs) they just weren't all that pressed. It's like they had an interesting place to draw the line. Like you would only come out when you were going to serve them pork and they're just, you know, horrified. But anything else that wasn't, you know what I mean? They weren't, they had ideas for their children and hopes like everyone else, but they just weren't all that pressed. And I think it's because they, you know, had more serious matters to attend. I mean, I don't know. I want to, don't want to presume what's going on. I'm sure that again, that was like a selective migration of people who, who came. It always is when it comes to the U S but it's like, there's a, there's a massive lack of three dimensional stories being told. Uh, There was a series called the bodyguard that was a huge hit in the, uh, in the UK. And I think in the U S as well. And I just didn't watch it. Are we talking about Whitney Houston? I feel, I feel, uh, no, no. <laughs> no, nothing to do with the film. Um, it's by the creator of another series called The Line of Duty. Okay. So, so it was about Arab Americans. No, no, it's it's English. It's English. So it's oh. set in England, but it's about the thing. It, and that's it. I I feel like I shouldn't even speak about it because I haven't I haven't watched it. So I can't. I shouldn't be able to comment. But the reason I haven't watched it is because I I read what it was about and it was. Again, oh, it's, you know, the Muslim terrorist, blah, blah, blah. And and as soon as that came up, I was like, I, I just can't be asked with it, with any of this anymore. So, yeah, for me, I find it to be a huge impediment. But also these stories, the problem is they don't exist in a vacuum now, because um, I've had this argument with people before where and it, we go back sort of full circle to Gone with the Wind when we talk about um and it's a wider debate and it's very topical because we're talking a lot about cancel culture and so on, that it becomes very problematic once you start um, banning works because they might lead to this, uh, they might lead to crime, they might lead to an upsurge in racism. Often this is more of a moral panic, like when video games were accused of this and that. I remember that, Marilyn Manson was... I remember that, Marilyn Manson, yeah. Yeah, you, yeah, who was responsible for all but like <laughs> the bombing of Iraq at one point, like literally everything was down to him. But that doesn't mean that they exist in a vacuum. That doesn't mean that they are, you, you should uncritically watch them. There is a certain level of responsibility there, which means put the content out. But I think what it comes down to is education. It, you, and it all, all comes down to the same with Gone with the Wind. Ultimately, you need to be able to have an educated crowd that can critically watch it and then you can enjoy you can enjoy the film as it is you can enjoy Jane Austen and it's interesting that this has come up now and probably this is why it's come up now is because um we're in the wake of a series of um closures and name changes and destruction of various statues of either slave traders or war criminals or whatever and there was a whole discourse around that I think that's what's important. It's not so much about whether or not we should test statues down. You basically need to educate people around it. And that's the problem is that's very time consuming. That's very costly. And that's that only happens over a long period of time. Well, I, well I, see, I'm actually going to disagree because I do think that you should 
you should change the monuments and tear them down. I mean, I th you need both, but I think the monuments absolutely because the monuments is it shows what you value. It's like you're putting those people on a pedestal, both, both figuratively yeah. and literally. Oh, no, uh, don't so, get me wrong. I didn't say you shouldn't. I just didn't say But I, I think the debate should oh, have right. gone well, past. Well, but see, that's the what, issue, though, right? Because yeah. that, that's the part that has to happen, the education. It does, it does have to happen. You need both pieces because I think the problem is, I mean, I was really surprised because I would expect it to go the other way around. And I'm no historian, but I would expect it to be that your edge. And maybe that is why the monuments are coming down right now because there was more there was a critical mass that was educated and then they wanted the change the symbolic change to happen i'm just concerned mm -hmm. that it was a symbolic change as opposed to the political shift that then the the symbolic change happened afterwards because then with the symbolic change that can't be films can go back to be we can enjoy films as as sheer entertainment without them having so much of a power of discourse that they currently have because all other discourse has been muted and is, is lacking and is biased and not many people have access no, to it. No, that is a huge problem because it's not only they don't have access to it in, in terms of uh, how journals are so expensive and a very small number of people can access them, but also the way these analyses... Like, if you aren't educated to a certain level, how would you even begin to tackle Saeed? Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? Like, Well, you wouldn't. And even now with the lectures, and I've seen some academic lectures that are good. I also, though, wonder if I've been doing it for years, how good am I at assessing if this is for public consumption or if it's for the echo chamber consumption? I think I like what you said best, that it has to be banning will do nothing. It's cheap symbolism. And ultimately, there needs to be the education to have a critical analysis of the films and then you can enjoy them and they won't have the power to shape your ideology. So excellent, Abla. Well, that said more eloquently than I did. <laughs> it it <laughs> wasn't. You. That was what you said. But yeah, I, I think I totally, um, <laughs> totally agree with that. And and also, it's been a lesson in how since my ancestors weren't from uh, the Caribbean, I can enjoy Jane Austen a, um, a bit more, and I will be more sympathetic to how others. Although, well. Actually, no, I'd probably never be sympathetic to people who are more with Gone with the Wind. I mean, it was the worst. And even if we think of <laughs> Hattie McDaniel, didn't even get to write her own speech, came in through the back door to accept, like, God, you can't get any exactly. worse. You can't get any more 1940s or 1930s Hollywood than that. I think you're right. I think basically there's a cultural and educational vacuum that needs to be filled even just history and historiography needs to be taught correctly. And that's a huge other debate. You know, what do you leave out? What do you include? Who teaches it? Who tells it? And so on. But, you know, these debates happen all the time. And I suspect that yeah. if people, I mean, I don't know about France or the UK, but if people in the US knew how these things work, they would be really shocked because it's not... You would think with all of the professors and all the PhD programs in education that our curriculum would not be left up to randoms who are appointed to boards by salespeople to ensure that their books are bought. Expensive, mediocre, <laughs> expensive and mediocre <laughs> textbooks. Not enough can be said about that. So, yeah.
Great. Well, that's it for us. Thank you very much for listening. You can find us on Twitter at MyDialorama. You can check out our website at www.mydialorama.org.uk. And until next time.